Um, but last week, Scott Maxwell was here, and he taught us the lesson. I hope that you enjoyed opening up your notes, going through that again, answering the homework questions, and hopefully that was a time to break it down and grab hold of something that you know, can really help you grow, help benefit your time in the Word. Um, and so I want to take just a minute to talk about that lesson, if we have a couple minutes. Um, and, and maybe it will just help us shepherd our hearts and think in how we respond to what we hear when we're here together, especially last week's lesson. Um, because it's good for us to remember that we can have a tendency to go to extremes. Um, you know, for example, we could take last week's lesson, last, the lesson we had last time, and get so excited about the mechanics of studying scripture, you know, the, the grammar and the words and all the, all the different pieces of it, that we would lose sight of the point that we're coming to the word to worship God. That we're coming to the word to know him better, to draw near to him. And that's the point. We wouldn't want to lose sight of that point. And on the other side of it, we could go to another extreme and feel so intimidated or overwhelmed or scared that we just think, oh my goodness, well, why would I even try to read the word if that's all that we have to know? You know, and just be so scared that we... we run away from the word. And that would be another extreme that we would want to stay away from, right? Those are both extremes. And the problem with both of those extremes is that both of them were losing sight of the point. Um, and that's why I just love um, where Scott started that lesson. You know, the, the principles, all of them are helpful. It's really helpful to know that when I open up to the word of God, that passage has one meaning. I mean, isn't that great? Just think if it had 10, wouldn't that be tricky? You know, but it has one. It has one. One correct meaning. And the meaning is the one that the author intended. Like, well, that's just refreshing. That just narrows it down. That's that's what I'm after when I open up the word. That's helpful to know. But of all the things that Scott taught us, we want to not lose sight of that very first one. Um, you know, this um, this week I had an opportunity. A six-year-old wanted to read the word to me, and he was reading from Genesis one. And uh, he got to Genesis one twenty-six, and he he he's reading. He says. God said, let us make man. And he stopped and he looked at me. He got so excited and he said, oh, I love this part. <laughs> I mean, is that not precious? That's the heart of worship that we want to bring to the word of God. That's the heart of worship. Whether we're sitting down and we're digging in, we're studying one verse so that we can know God better through that one verse, or we're reading four chapters, um, that's the heart we want to bring to our time in the word. So anyway, I just want to encourage you with that, thinking about last week's lesson. Remember what the point is, and it's a process. We're going to keep growing in our understanding of God's Word the more time we spend in the Word. And the point is to know God better. Good morning. (laughs) This is what the Lord has for us in the next couple of hours. So we will press on. Um, Just to start, my computer crashed on me. And I haven't been able to get it in and get it back. So I'm using papers this morning. I know others do that, but I don't do it well, I don't think. So um, if I lose my spot, would you just bear with me as I find it again? Um, thank you. And your outline looks like we're going to be here for three hours. I promise we are not. <laughs> I promise we are not. There's a lot there. Okay. Thanks for praying. We're going to pray again in a little bit. Um, Would you turn your notebooks over with me, as we do every week? Bringing our attention to the disciplines of Wellspring. We could just start to zone out, couldn't we? We've heard this every week that we're together. But I love how the purpose connects the disciplines. And so we want to listen intently. We're going to talk about the disciplines as we go through our purpose. We're going to read a little bit, go look at the discipline, a little bit more, look at the discipline. So to begin, the purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible. And we're going to stop right there. That's us. That's you and that's me. And we can be humbled, can't we, by God's kindness to us, that he's put us in a body of believers with elders who desire to help and encourage us in this, in this pursuit. And it reminded me of Scott's uh, series in Acts, that the elders of Grace Bible have been appointed by God, by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that they're called to guard against themselves, to be suspect of their own hearts? 
And our elders at Grace are so intent on shepherding their own hearts and one another. And they're serious about how they shepherd the flock. Don't we see that evidenced all around us? And I think it's fair to say that they care for us in ways that we are not even aware of. God is kind to do that to us, for us. To give us faithful men to lead us and to protect us and to guide us. And we want to make it easy for them to shepherd us. So what is it they want us to be equipped and encouraged to do? See it there in the next part of our purpose. It's to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. There we are, discipline one. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God, and in particular, the gospel. It's so dangerous for us to be consumed with our own heart, off by ourselves, without the word of God. But we are to be diligent about bringing this heart of ours to the word of God, to Christ, through daily meeting with him in his word. That's the only safe place for us to examine our hearts to be transformed to be like Christ as we behold the greatness of who he is and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. That's why discipline one is worth fighting for, to do everything we possibly can to bring our hearts before God throughout the day. And maybe in, your, in a season or in your life where you need help, to do that and you can ask others to help me to manage my time so that this is my highest priority hold me accountable to this and you remember that Jacob I think was here a month or so ago and he reminded us of the great need to shepherd our hearts right don't clean up the outside of the body while there's poison flowing through the pipes and remember that he said my desire for my heart um, to, the desire to guard my heart is no guarantee that I will guard my heart. It takes discipline. Our hearts need and must have continual guarding. And why do we shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word? So that we live gospel-transformed lives. That's the result of spending time with Jesus and his word. The gospel transforms our hearts. And it consequently changes how we live, how we think, how we act how we interact with one another, how we speak, how we serve, so that those in our home, first, there's discipline two, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And the result of that impact is how our response concludes. And we're going to get into discipline two a lot more this morning. Living those gospel-transformed lives strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. Discipline three, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And remember here that the disciplines happen simultaneously. We don't graduate from discipline one Move into discipline two, and when we have that all wired, then we step into the church and we move on to discipline three. We're pursuing all three disciplines at the same time. And as long as you and I think about how we shepherd our hearts is just about us or only as big as our world or those people that we interact with, we can maybe become content with a half-hearted pursuit of Christ. But when we remember that God has placed us in the body of Christ, and that we're all members of it, and God's, it's God's means of displaying the fullness of Christ, is to build one another up in faith. Then we recognize how serious, again, it is to be diligent in our walk with Christ. And we want to encourage one another in that pursuit. And hasn't it been so encouraging to watch so many in our body as they suffer and as they walk with Christ? and be reminded of how faithful they have been. In pursuing Christ, it's a call for us to be faithful. There is no guarantee on tomorrow. God has designed that our lives would build up one another's faiths as we walk with him closely. 
It builds up the church. Today we're going to be looking more closely at Discipline 2 as we look at Proverbs 14.1. Would you pray with me before we start that? Oh God, you are the author of all good. As we stand at the threshold of the day, we commit ourselves to you. Would you guide us and protect us? Would you sanctify us? Incline our hearts to you. Transform us to be like Christ, that we might better glorify you. Lord, I pray that our affections for you would grow as we look into your word, and that others' lives would indeed build us up, and that our lives, Lord, would build others up around us, that our body would be strengthened, and that our country would be influenced by the way that we live. Thank you for bringing us here this morning and for these sweet ladies before us, before me. Thank you for all that you have done in us. And Lord, we continue to pray that you would purify our hearts. So would you help us in these places that residue of foolishness remains, that you would help us to see that and give us desire to change, that we might better, um, again, glorify you. Thank you for your kindness and your gentleness and even revealing our sin. Lord, I pray that we would battle hard, that we would kill sin that remains in us. So Lord, would you help us to focus for these next little bits? I pray for our, our morning, that it would glorify you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, Proverbs 14.1. The foolish woman builds your house. I'm sorry. Oh my goodness. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. It's a short verse, but it is packed full of truth and of warnings. We want to make sure first that we understand what a proverb is. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. A proverb is usually a short saying that gives insight into human life and behavior, but it cannot be interpreted as prophecy, promise, or absolute doctrine. Here's an example on uh, Proverbs 16:7. you have in your outline. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's true, generally speaking. But we know that Jesus was always obedient to the Father, but his enemies were not at peace with him. Sure doesn't mean the proverb is wrong because we know God's word is inerrant, is without error. It simply means it's not a promise or a doctrine. A proverb is a wise saying, a general insight into life. Proverbs examines all kinds of situations in life and evaluates, is this wise or is this foolish? Well, home is the place that we first display all that the gospel has done in us because of Christ's work on the cross. It's also the place where we most dramatically see where we must still fight for the gospel's influence in our life. There's opportunity every day, right, in our homes? Well, build in this verse does not refer to constructing a physical home, but caring for a household and causing it to flourish, to help those in it to prosper and to thrive in every way. Whereas a woman of wisdom builds up her household, a woman of folly lives in such a way that her household is neglected. And we will see this more as we study together today. A wise woman blesses them whom God has placed in her household. We all have a home, right? Some live with family, some with, a, some with children. Maybe you're a young woman living with her parents. Maybe you have roommates. Maybe you live alone. Seasons are going to change for all of us. Your home extends to those whom God brings to your home, maybe for a meal or for a weekend stay. This wise woman will order her home with diligence, intentionally loving and doing good and not harm to those in her home. She takes great pains to profit those there in every way. In contrast to this wise woman, the foolish woman tears her house down, even though she may do it inadvertently. She may be given to contentiousness, to ungratefulness or bitterness, using her words as demolition tools 
and demolishing that home. The foolish woman will destroy those people and things most precious to her. We might envision the foolish woman in regards to a home as a large wrecking ball swung from a crane into a home or a building. You've seen that, right? Where it's just destroyed in an instant. Now, there was much forethought and plan ahead of that, but this day, the home, this uh, building is destroyed. Or maybe, in contrast, like termites, little by little, eating away <coughs> the foundation of the home. Left unchecked, those small bugs will destroy a home completely, little by little. Well, let's turn and see these things in, in Scripture. In Proverbs twelve eighteen. you have that in your outline. You can follow along um, and turn if you'd like, whatever is best for you. Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And Proverbs eighteen twenty one, <coughs> death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we find in First Corinthians one thirty that although the message of the cross is foolishness to fools, to those who are perishing, it is the power of God for salvation to those who will believe. We're going to see that Christ has become for the believer wisdom from God. Let's look at that, and that's back at Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. Here's a call, a strenuous call to wisdom. Let's read 2, 1 through 6. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up your commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek for it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and then find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we learn that wisdom comes from God. Here we see that we participate in pursuing and growing and obtaining wisdom too. That is chocked full right there and it's clear that a fool's only hope is for god the all-wise god to make one wise wisdom comes from god and when god gives wisdom to the fool that one is cured of his foolishness his affections and desires thinking and living are transformed the foolish one is giving a new heart he's a new creature a new creation transformed by god only God can change the hearts of men. But do you ever wonder like I did for so long? I think I'm a believer, but when I read Proverbs, I'm looking much more like a fool. Well, it was at Grace Bible in Wellspring that God used as a tool to give me greater understanding into the heart and the mixed condition we live in. We'll see that played out again as we continue. There is one who is a fool. He is without Christ. That's the definition of a fool, one without Christ. He has a life characterized by foolishness of one who has not been saved by God. As we read Proverbs and scripture, we want to evaluate our hearts as one who has been saved by God and still battling the sin of foolishness, that mixed condition. The Christian's life is not characterized by foolishness, though the residue of foolishness is definitely in the heart. But we remember and be encouraged that the power of sin has been broken and the penalty of sin has been paid, but the presence of sin remains in our hearts. We have sin's residue. There is foolishness. Do you ever feel as though you are becoming more sinful as you grow closer to the Lord? Well, that's because we're made more aware of our sin against a holy God. As we learn more about him and grow in love for him, in reality, God is purifying us. What a gift it is that we're able to see our sin and to turn from it. So when we see fool in scripture, we ought to think one of two things. One, this is one whose only hope is that the, that the all-wise God would give him a new heart. Or two, this is one who knows God but is acting foolishly at this moment. 
is flesh ruling. And we see in Galatians 5, the description of the one who is walking by the flesh versus the one who is walking by the spirit. We're talking about one characterized by one or the other. One who's walking as a fool is definitely characterized by the deeds of the flesh as an unbeliever. But as believers of Jesus, we'll display some of these deeds of the flesh, but not characterized by them. Do you see? Our lives will be more descriptive of the fruit of the Spirit. Proverbs isn't speaking to us as followers of Christ about our salvation. This has nothing to do with our salvation. We're no longer fools, but counted wise because God the Father has adopted us as his children. But Proverbs helps us to evaluate the residue of foolishness remaining. When you and I see ourselves in Proverbs, as we bring our hearts before God's word, like bear before him, and we see wisdom, we praise him for evidence of his grace. And when we see ourselves and see foolishness there, we're going to look to God's grace for the power to turn from selfishness and to walk again in wisdom. He has made a way for us to do that. Well, the stage has been set as we look at the contrast between these two kinds of women, the foolish and the wise. And so we continue. The wise woman, fully dependent on God and his word, builds up, figuratively speaking, the prosperity of her household. So we're going to see wisdom uh, descriptions in Proverbs here. Proverbs 11.16, going on in your outline, a gracious woman attains honor. In Proverbs 19.14, a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 31, verse 10 and verse 30, an excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above rubies. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she (coughs) shall be praised. What makes this woman excellent? It's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord makes us wise. Well, there's two important characteristics of the wise. And the first blank on your outline is the wise woman listens well. She's teachable. There's an eagerness to receive instruction and learning as well as rebuke and discipline. Does that describe you and I? A wise woman is in a full-on pursuit to grow in her understanding and to grow in her grasp of the gospel. The woman continues to saturate herself in truths and realities and strives to know God more and more. She seeks to remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A wise woman has nothing to dread because she has drawn upon the cross of Christ. This woman trusts in Jesus. She no longer comes in her own righteousness, of which she has none. She trusts in his. She comes to him in his righteousness. And the deeper our understanding of our sin and the holiness of God, the sweeter his mercy on the cross becomes. The more bitter sin becomes, the sweeter our love for Jesus becomes. She listens well because she is eager to know God and to please him. I'm going to continue on in the book of Proverbs and the descriptions of a wise woman as we continue here. Proverbs 8.33, a wise woman heeds instruction and doesn't neglect it. Proverbs 9.8, she loves the one who reproves her. You see, we don't see our own blind spots, right? They're called blind spots for a reason. We need one another. God uses one another in the lives of each other. We're instruments in the Redeemer's hand to be used to fulfill his purposes in one another's lives. Proverbs 10, 8 and Proverbs 15, 31, a wise woman receives commands and she listens to life-giving reproof, unlike the babbling fool who will be ruined. Proverbs 19, 20, A wise woman listens to counsel and accepts discipline. Proverbs 9, 9. A wise woman, when she is taught, becomes wiser still. Proverbs 8, 34. A wise woman also listens to wisdom. So we see that a teachable spirit begins with a spirit of humility. It's a spirit recognizes that we, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners. 
And in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you see the fruit of the Spirit characterizing the wise woman. A teachable spirit is descriptive of a woman who knows she needs to change and grow and is eager to do that. It might be inviting others to speak into my life. What do you see in my life that you think I don't see? That's humbling, but that's seeking to grow in wisdom. Well, the second blank on our outline is the wise woman speaks wisely. In Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth. And Jesus made the same point in Luke 6, 45. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And our wellspring verse, Proverbs 4, 23 Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Challenges will come. You and I will sin, and we will be sinned against. Trials will come. Do you know that even prosperity is a great test of what is in my heart? Whatever is in my heart will be revealed. So let's purpose together to spend ourselves to be filled with the gospel of Christ, so that what spills out our gospel realities and truths Scott was here, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and he gave us a sample prayer. I think you all have it in your notebooks. Um, To help us to pray and keep our heart engaged with the Lord, one of the paragraphs reads, I desire my heart and mind to be filled with you because of what your your word reveals to me about you. I long for you to spill out of me into my home and wherever you lead me today. All who come in contact with me today must interact with a woman whose heart has drawn upon, has drawn near to you and your grace. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you in his word, in your word, and gazed upon your son in the gospel. We are useful to the Lord when we submit ourselves to him through his word. Well, look at what scripture says as we continue. Starting in... uh, Proverbs 10, 19, a wise woman restrains her lips. A wise woman isn't rash, but rather her tongue brings healing. There's Proverbs 12, 18 again. A wise woman's teaching is a fountain of life. It turns aside the snares of death. A wise woman's lips protect. A wise woman makes knowledge acceptable and her lips spread knowledge. Proverbs 25, 12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, is a wise reprover to a listening ear. The wise woman will wisely and carefully reprove one another, and the wise woman will listen. All of these verses show that to be wise, one must guard her heart well, so that what comes forth from her mouth is thoughtful, helpful, protective, instructive, and winsome. Well, we are sinners living with sinners. The question then is, how will I respond How will you respond? Will we build up or tear down? Will we respond in light of the gospel? Will I think of another as more important than myself in this situation, in every situation? Will I seek to serve in love? God has richly supplied us with everything we need to respond rightly in every gift situation, to speak wisely and to be intentional as we live alongside one another. Well, we can summarize one who is wise by how we listen and how we speak. And now we'll look at the contrasting foolish woman in Proverbs. Words is one way we tear down our homes, but Proverbs speaks to many other ways we can tear down our home. The next blank on your outline says Proverbs speaks severe warnings against the sexually immoral woman. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but you have scripture references in your notes for further study on your own. But before we go, we want to understand what sexual immorality is. What is it? And that might sound like a silly question to ask, but in today's world, much of the world has seeped into the church, and we want to guard against that. We want to be sure we're not thinking that way. Biblically, God calls us to be pure, and that means that we view others as brothers, and sisters, seeking to speak and act, dress, even thinking in a way that does them good, that helps them see Christ in us, 
and spurs them on to love God and to be pure. And the only relationship that is to go beyond that is if we're married. The relationship with that one man. And in that context, sex is good. It's not immoral. It's pure and it's God-honoring. But bringing sex or being sexually provocative or immodest in our dress, or as Jesus said, even thinking sinfully, sexually, about another person, is immoral. But like any sin, sexual immorality is birthed in our heart. And even if we think we're not behaving in a way that's immoral, we still need to check our hearts. Be suspect of your heart. So we can ask ourselves questions like, where are my affections? Do I desire what I shouldn't? Am I content with what God has given me or not given me? Am I conducting myself in a way that is loving in my dress and my conduct and my speech? Those kinds of questions can help us identify if maybe there's a root of sexual immorality in our hearts. And we must guard this heart in our mind by being very careful about what we watch and what we listen to or what we read. There's a lot of worldly views that penetrate TV screens, movie theaters, New York bestsellers, even social media. It's nothing less than sexual immorality. Though maybe they add some beautiful music and some great looking actors and actresses, it is still vile. In guarding our hearts, it's, not a, it's, um, it's about what we allow in and also what we keep out. I ask you, as I ask myself, how are we doing? We must not be entertained by what Christ has died for. The next blank on your outline, Proverbs warns against idleness throughout Scripture. Idleness tears down our homes. And here are some questions again to ask. Whom do I serve? Am I a hectic sluggard? Busy, 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 and never accomplishing anything important? Do I neglect priorities that God has given to me? Or do I do what I want to do? <coughs> Laziness or idleness tears down. It's characteristic of a foolish woman. It's rooted in self-love. <coughs> it's the ability to take myself off the hook. It's a willingness to permit ourselves not to do the things that we should do. It's believing that good things should come to me without having to work for them. It's opting for what's comfortable for me rather than what is best for others. And one way this can be seen is in the discipline of children. Raising children is hard work. And my eye must be on what is best for my child at the moment and not on my own pleasure or comfort. I'm so encouraged by watching the mamas here and the daddies here care for their children. But we can see that laziness is always self-focused. It's undisciplined and it's unmotivated. It expects more from you than I require from myself. Laziness demands good things without being willing to invest in them. Well, all of the warnings we've seen to this point are very serious, and the references are in your notes for the immoral and the idle woman for further study. But this morning, we're going to focus on contentiousness, to be ready to use our words to build up rather than to tear down. Remember, our tongues have the power to heal and the power to destroy. So the next one uh, I think you got is the contentious woman. And the def definition of contention is to be given to angry debate, to be quarrelsome, strife, and discord. And we're going to see this as we look into Proverbs. Proverbs 19.13, the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Proverbs 21.9 and 19, it is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. It's better to live in a desert land than a con with a contentious and vexing woman. And the word vexing there is the same, to provoke, to stir up, to irritate, to distress or debate in anger. It might look like one who is wanting to have the last word. 
Proverbs 27, 15, and 16, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasp oil with his right hand. Well, one of the most sobering examples of contentiousness in the word is seen in the Israelites during the wilderness wanderings. Turn to Exodus 17, 1, if you will, with me. See if you identify yourself with them. I think we all can. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Well, they have a real need, don't they? They needed water. But the problem is in their response to the problem, to this need. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Do you ever find yourself grumbling or complaining? Grumbling and complaining are signs of contention. And we tear down our homes and our relationships when our hearts are filled with discontent. But thankfulness cultivated in our heart kills contentiousness. Thinking on all that God has done for us as believers, what we truly deserve and what he's given us in salvation and all the benefits we have of knowing him and all the things that he gives us now to enjoy in the way of earthly blessings is a sure way to battle this sin of contentiousness. There's always something to be thankful for when you know Christ. He's always at work in our lives, in our circumstances, and he's always good. We can trust this God. Well, God was gracious to his people, and he is a gracious God to us. In spite of their sinful responses, he provided for their need. He provided water. But the passage goes on. Let's skip down to verse 7. And he, there's a lesson that God had for them. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, what can we learn? You can fill in the blank as I read. Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. Contentiousness breeds more sin. Contentiousness breeds more sin. Grumbling, fear, and accusation, one sin leads to another. Sin always travels with companions. If there's one, look out, there's another one right there with it. Complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness. Wow! Complaining fails to acknowledge what is true about God and his faithfulness. There's an example of one who has fallen short of his understanding of God. One who is short-sighted. We preach to ourselves verses that speak to God's faithfulness. Preaching the gospel to ourselves and we will guard against complaining. Again, we want to remind one another of these truths as well when there is a real need before us. God's view of contentiousness is that we are actually testing him. We're not believing that he's actually among us or that he cares for us or that he's at work for our good and his glory. He's promised that he will do that. We're not trusting God's goodness to us when we complain that we have at this moment is the best he has for us. And that's in blessing and that is in trial. It is God's best. God provided for us for our greatest need of salvation. And he will provide for us in every other way, no matter what, no exceptions ever. 
Well, this same pattern shows up in Israel's wanderings for 40 years to the very near end. They had 40 years of God's faithfulness, and yet they continued to be contentious. As we continue to see, Proverbs reveals that contention is stirred up by anger. 29.22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. And Proverbs 15.18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Contention is stirred up by arrogance. 28.25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Contention is stirred up by gossip. 26.20, for lack of wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Contention also creates defensiveness. Contentions are like the bars of a citadel, it says in 1819 of Proverbs. When a city was under attack, the people of the city would bar themselves in for protection. This type of defensive action in our homes brings division. There's contention and one party hides away. There's withdrawal from one another. Rather than responding foolishly, or anger, or in pride, rather as the wise, maybe the next time we encounter control, um, or anger, or withdrawal in a relationship, we can look behind those behaviors to discern the real issue. More often than not, it might be a hidden concern or anxiety. Instead of defending ourselves, we can try something like, I've realized how concerned you must be about and then describe the issue as graciously as possible. Can you help me to understand more clearly your thoughts so we can work on this together? The more quickly we address one another with gentleness and kindness and love of Christ, the more we're going to see a positive result. For who among us has not been hurt by the words of another or that we haven't said that has hurt another? Who can say my words are always appropriate to the situation and they're always kindly spoken? None of us can say that. So I hope you see how we can build up if we are diligent to bring our hearts to God, to go back to the beginning. You see, the more our eyes are turned to Christ, the more diligently we pursue knowing him, the more we gaze upon his character the less we desire to sin. We're going to grow in holiness as we behold who God is. Well, no woman wants to tear her home down. It's not something we want, but we, many women do, because the aim is not to glorify God at any given moment, but self. One might be driven more by personal gain, personal desire, than God's glory, and our homes are torn down. Maybe it's not completely destroyed at first, but it's not thriving. And we know it doesn't just happen, right? We just naturally desire our own way. God's glory, then, is a battle that is worth fighting for, that we must fight for, against sin of selfishness or impatience, so that when someone in my home does or says something that's contrary to what I want, we're going to respond in a way that brings glory to God. We display His kindness when we respond in a loving manner. And we display his patience when we're patient with one another. So we must be preparing for, battling for, and aware of our hearts so that what comes out of my mouth will be good that is stored up in my heart and that has been purposed to know God and his character and that will build up and edify those around. Through my attitudes and words and behavior, we have the power to bless and to build up lives of those around us. And we have the power to jerk to tear down and destroy, as we have seen. Well, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We learn that Jesus is the Word. He's the only hope for our words. Apart from Him, we can do no good thing. Paul Tripps talks about, uh, speaks about speaking redemptively, and it's all about choosing our words carefully. It's not just about the words we say, but also about the words we've chosen not to say. And the timing of those words and the tone in which we speak those words. We refuse to let our talk to be driven by passion and personal desire, but communicating instead with God's purposes in view. 
And are we prepared for what sanctification will cost? Sanctification, remember, is the process of becoming like Christ. It will cost an intense narrowing of my interest and an immense broadening of all of God's interests. It means intense concentration on God's point of view. It means every power of body, soul, and spirit chained and kept for God's purposes only. God's wise, redemptive purpose is to use our relationships as a workroom for his ongoing work of sanctification. In all relationships, our hearts are going to be exposed, and they can be changed as we come under him in submission to his words. He's promised to finish the work he's begun in us. Our God is mighty to save, is he not? And is he not only mighty to save, but he doesn't leave us there to defend for ourselves, but he who has begun a good work, will complete it. He's mighty to do that. Instead of demanding change in another, we want to learn what it means to speak redemptively in the face of disappointment or hurt, failure or sin, in order to build up our homes and bring glory to God. What does it mean for us, then, to choose our words, to speak redemptively, to forsake contention? Well, let's look at a couple of passages that point us in the way of change. Both passages define what it means to choose our words so that we might be part of what he's doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by one another. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Are our relationships shaped by the rule of love? Are they showing forth the servant posture we're called to here? We seek God to reveal how we could be used to encourage one another and support what he's doing. We make it our aim to look for ways to comfort and to encourage, warn, or teach another. It's important to view the difficulty as an opportunity to minister God's grace. We have a choice to make in this moment of disagreement or fear or whatever is before us. We look to serve and not to be served. This builds up our home and our body. Either I'm living as a servant of the Lord and accepting his call to serve those around me, or I'm living to gratify the cravings of the sinful nature, and expecting others to satisfy those cravings as well. In James 4, it explains our desires, how they affect the dynamics of a relationship, what causes fights and quarrels among you. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. Well, back in Galatians 14, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. The problem in our relationships is not fundamentally horizontal, person to person, but fundamentally vertical, person to God. If I'm in right relationship with God, these relationships will look a whole lot different. If I'm living for his glory, if I hold this as more important than my own happiness, if my love for him stands above my love for anyone or anything else, including myself, then my practical goal in life will be to please God in everything I do and say wherever he puts me. One sure fruit of such a heart commitment to God is that I will love my neighbor as myself. When a desire for a certain thing replaces love for God as the controlling force of my heart, the result will be conflict in my relationships. Conflict has vertical roots that produce the horizontal fruits of fighting and quarreling. Love for God that makes me want to keep his way will always result in practical love for my husband, my child, my roommate, my parent, my neighbor. Communication is designed to build up, to strengthen, and to encourage. Change at the level of the heart fundamentally alters the way that we speak to one another. Well, the problem is not that we have problems. The core issue is the way of the desires of our heart dictates our response to each other in the midst of those problems. When we live for ourselves and not for God, we bite and devour one another. 
when our hearts are not ruled by the law of love, but by the desires of the sinful nature, and we look to have our own dreams and desires, demands filled, we will become angry and disappointed when that doesn't happen. We act foolishly in that circumstance. This passage is helpful guide as we go back. <clears throat> oh, yeah. For, um, sorry. This passage is a guide for what it means to speak up, to build up, and to not tear down our homes. Um, I was thinking about that circle chart again. That is a great way to just see where your heart is and to help you to get realigned along with Scripture, putting that alongside Scripture. We cannot ignore the practical concerns that we have in our lives because we will encounter them every day. Rather, we speak to these concerns in a way that promotes the interests of the king in the following ways. As long as indwelling sin remains, there will be a war within my heart. I must always live aware of this conflict, but because to forget the presence and power of indwelling sin will immediately lead to problems in our talk, looking for that residue of foolishness. Never giving in to the desires of the sinful nature as I talk. All of us wrestle with conflicting desires when something goes wrong. We may desire that an appropriate godly solution be found, but our desires are operating there as well, other ones. We may desire to shift blame or separate from responsibility. We may desire to rehearse all the other times this person has hurt us or has failed us. We might desire to share the failure of this person with another. We might be jealous that someone is getting the attention that we think we deserve. We might be filled with bitter anger or hatred. We might be filled with rage. We build up our relationships and our homes by saying no to any communication that would flow from these desires. We don't first speak by examining the situation. We begin by self-examination. What is going on in this heart of mine? Building up our homes means refusing to speak in any way that is contrary to God. As a Christian, the most important thing in our lives is the completion of God's work in me and in others around. We never want to obstruct what he's doing as the Redeemer in the little moments he has put us in. We want to recognize that ultimately those moments don't belong to me, but to him. They are the root room, I'm the <laughs> the work room in which he does his work of sanctification. If I'm seeking to live consistently with the Spirit's work in me and not give room for the enemy, I must be willing to examine my talk with the mirror of the God, of the word. We want the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart to be pleasing to the Lord. So we bring our hearts to his word again. And we can do that throughout our day. Shepherding our heart is not just that for the morning time throughout our day. The best and most constructive way to build up our homes is to have a thriving and intimate relationship with God, to be so near to him and to know his ways. We do well to pay attention to our hearts. How do I respond? Why am I responding this way? What's going on in this heart of mine? Are my words building up or tearing down? It's clearly one or the other. How about the cold shoulder or not speaking but thinking wrong thoughts? That is just as damaging. All are rooted in the heart. We don't examine ourselves with a morbid, discouraged attitude of self-criticism. We do it with joy, realizing that because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to live under the control of the sinful nature. We must say no to rationalization, blame-shifting, or self-serving arguments that would excuse talk that is contrary to what he's doing. We've been giving so many helpful resources, and again, go to, your, go to your notebook. Ask your sister in Christ. Remember, we talked about this at Wellspring. Help me to find that again. And we look to situation, difficult situations of life as sovereignly given opportunities to see this fruit mature in me by his grace. Difficulties are not obstacles to the development of this fruit, but opportunities to see them grow. And we can be gentle with one another. Gentleness flows knowing where our power lies. God has used whispered words to produce thunderous convictions at the heart. 
Yes, we want to think and speak well, but only because we want to be helpful to the one who does bring great change, not because we think we're skilled in our speech to produce it. Gentle talk does not come from a person who is angry and looking to settle the score. It comes from a person who is speaking not because of what he wants from you, but what he wants for you. And we build up our homes when we want what is best for others, the good I want for another. We're able to speak gently only when we're not speaking out of personal hurt or anger, but out of self-sacrificing love. I seek to I speak to you not because your sin has affected me, but because it has ensnared you. I long to see you freed from this snare. I'm not on a mission of selfish confrontation, but of loving rescue. Oh, this just reminds me how desperately we need him. We must prepare this heart to respond this way, to always be pleasing to the Lord by drawing near to him continually. I will choose to live other-centered life and other-centered communication. God calls us to look beyond our personal comfort and success, to see the good of the others struggling to carry his load and share the weight. That's the way of Christ. Building up our homes means choosing our words carefully. We are committed to serve one another in love and use our words wisely. Well, there are some contrasted contrasts listed on your outline to help evaluate do my words build up or tear down. I'll just read a couple. I frequently express gratitude for the benefits that I have received from God and others, or I frequently grumble about having what I don't want or wanting what I don't have. I'm quick to humble myself and seek forgiveness when I've wronged someone, or I tend to defend or justify myself rather than admitting when I'm wrong. I'm faithful to pray for God's work in another's lives, my husband or child or friend or parent. We have to ask, have I prayed about this as much as I've grumbled about it? I shouldn't be grumbling at all. I spend more time talking to friends or counselors about the needs and the lives of those around me than I do in fervent intercessory prayer on their behalf. The tongue is a little member of the body, but it is one member that must be yielded to God as a tool of righteousness. When we are wise with our words, we're placing our trust in God, confident of his faithfulness to work for his glory and our good as we obey him. That um, encouragement I find in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he suffered. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. We'll fight the sin of contention by remembering God's character. He can only ever be kind and good. We want to think the best of another. Love hopes all things. Don't underestimate your own sinfulness. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. In your time with the Lord, ask him to show you, as I have, what's pleasing to him in your speech and what does not. We can align our hearts with his and seek him for his grace as we renew our minds with his truth. Cultivate a heart of thankfulness. Rehearse the gospel. Look around you and give thanks for the gifts he's given for you to enjoy here. Continue to look in scripture for instruction in God-honoring speech. Well, there are a lot of other ways in scripture that we can build up our homes. But today we focus on our tongues and they reveal what they reveal about our hearts. Well, my hope is that we've been encouraged by God's grace um, through this lesson and that the Holy Spirit has convicted you maybe in places of your heart that needs God's grace as he has mine. And that is a gift to see. Contentiousness is a repeated warning in the home, as we have seen. But we have hope, and we want to remember the hope that we have. Gospel hope for contentious women. Turn to 1 Peter 2.24, if you would. 1 Peter 2.24.
And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. Immorality, idleness, contentiousness, harsh speaking, and live to righteousness. Live thankfully, contented, peaceably, for by his wounds we are healed. We are forgiven, we are made new, we are new creatures in Christ. Thinking on and praising the Lord for his character and for the gospel is another way of shepherding our heart throughout the day. The gospel helps me move from a performance-based relationship to one based on the sinless life and death and resurrection of Christ. It reminds me that from God's view, my relationship is not based on how good or bad I have been that day, how wise or foolish I have been, but on the perfect goodness and death of Christ. The gospel frees me to honestly face and acknowledge my sin. You see, if I don't see my sin or acknowledge my sin, I'll not see my need for him. And I continue to trust in myself. The good news reminds me that God no longer counts that sin against me. Our Father is loving. He is a kind master. Ladies, tearing down a home can be done little by little. A little here, a little there like a termite. Or there are times there is great ruin that happens quickly like a wrecking ball. And it takes much to rebuild. Maybe it's unnoticed for a time, words said or not said. But we want to remember Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If we're thinking we're uh, thoughts consistent with the world, like being annoyed or disappointed or prideful, that's the kind of words that will come out of our mouth. That will be our attitude. Christ calls us to renew our minds, to think like Christ. There are times that we see the residue of foolishness in our hearts revealed through our thoughts and words. What spills out of a cup of coffee? Coffee. What spills out of my heart reveals what is in my heart. As you and I are diligent to renew our minds with Scripture, rather than being more familiar with the world, the voices there, but knowing God and showing our love for Him by obeying His Word, we can build up our home by His grace. This building up not only builds up our home, but each other's homes, your sister's home, our church body, the body at large, and it influences our country. The way we live our lives is as Titus 2 is to be a demonstration of the jewel of the gospel truth. It says that in everything that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, we can be women who speak redemptively. Christ has equipped us to speak, to build up. The gospel is a call for us to forsake according to I'm sorry, forsake living according to the cravings of the sinful nature so that we might live for Christ. We were bought at a great price, and we belong to him. Well, it is important for us to be diligent to bring our hearts to the word of God. We see the more we look like Christ, the more we pursue him again, the more we look upon his character, the less we desire to sin and we grow in holiness. When I see in the word that God does not treat me as my sins deserve, And being in his word, I also see my sin. I also see that he is kind and he is loving and he is quick to forgive. That compels me to love him more and more and to pursue holiness. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says that for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that once one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Building requires obedience and faithfulness in all the small details of our lives. It looks like putting others' interests ahead of our own. It's confessing sin. It looks like submitting ourselves to God's word ready to do what it tells us to do because we love him. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because we love him. We belong to him. Our life is not our own. So let us pursue Christ more diligently this week. Let our affections be for him, whose trust is in him, whose service is for him, 
He is our Savior and our King, our great Redeemer, so that our homes might be built up for His glory, that He would be made much of. O faithful God, who is the word, who has dwelt among us, who gave his son as a righteous and perfect sacrifice for those who were foolish, who were lost in their sin, dead in their sin. And because of your great love for us, you gave Christ to die in our place, to take our sin, to purify us from all unrighteousness. And we now live as daughters of the King, as friends, as co-heirs with Christ. We were bought with a great price, and we belong to you now. Let us entrust ourselves to you. And as difficulties come today and in the days to come, remind us of your words, that it is wise to build up, that it is wise to speak kindly, to encourage, to love one another because we love you and we want to please you. We want to, we know that we're pleasing to you because of Christ, but we want to live obediently in order to show forth our love for you. Thank you for gathering us together this morning. Again, may you be lifted up in our hearts and our minds and may you be lifted up and glorified in all the earth. We love you, God, and we look forward to what you're going to do in our hearts and what you're going to do through us as we share with one another in our group. I pray that that would be sweet time of sharing with one another all that you have done and places that we still need your grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen.